1: The opinions expressed on this WebmasterRadio.fm program are those of the host, guests, and callers. And do not reflect those of the staff, management, or advertisers of WebmasterRadio.fm. Any rebroadcast or retransmission of this program without the express written consent of WebmasterRadio.fm is prohibited.
2: All rise. Welcome to the Cyber Law and Business Report.
3: Good morning and welcome back to another edition of the Cyber Law and Business Report. This is Bennett Kelly with the Internet Law Center speaking to you from sunny Southern California here in Santa Monica. Um, we've, we have survived Carmageddon quite capably. And so um, court is in session. You may be seated. Uh, we have a very good show for you today. We're going to talk about um, a couple of numbers. First, we're going to talk about Six Strikes. And the recent graduated response deal that ISPs and content providers, um, struck with respect to copyright infringement. And we'll explain that a little more detail. And we have, um, fortunately, we have with us from the Electronic Frontier Foundation, Corey McSherry. And then in the second segment, we have James O'Brien, who some of you may remember, um, was a, was with um lashback the email compliance um company and um he is now a, a associate publisher of campaigns and elections and two thousand and twelve is is fast approaching and we have the the latest f e c numbers in terms of um what candidates are spending. But we're also going to talk about what will the role of the online space be in the campaign, and will there will there be much of a shift? And in the past, online campaign spending has only accounted for one or two percent in past elections, and um, even though it's close to twenty percent as a whole in, in in general advertising. And so, what will the role of online advertising and be in the online um, in general, be in the upcoming 2012 election. James is a political veteran, and I'm sure he'll have a lot of interesting things to say about that. But bef- um, before we start, um, today is a, is a significant day. We're going to start with numbers. Today, the first number is one, and that is uh, one small step for man, um, one giant step for mankind happened today, um, 1969. Um and we actually man landed on the moon and um neil armstrong made that um, famous statement as he stepped down from apollo and um i actually had the an experience where um, i was at a i was at a dinner where there was some people from um the mars rover project speaking and um in order to let them the speakers actually get a chance to eat their meal they asked everyone to go around the room and talk about where they were when apollo landed and uh, my wife actually was in Africa, and she talked about how a lot of the Africans um, were very superstitious about it. And in fact, anything that happened bad over the next year, they ended up blaming on the uh, the Apollo landing. Um, but um, what was interesting, there was one gentleman in the room, and they asked him, um, "Where were you on that day?" And he said, "I was out of town. I was out. Of, I was out of town with some guys," and that was Buzz Aldrin. So um, a very good line on his part. So. Um, That is the one. But let's jump to the six and the six strikes and the graduated response um, with us from the Electronic Frontier Foundation is Corinne McSherry. She's um, the intellectual property director there, um, has an extensive background in intellectual property and free speech issues, Um, previously had been with Bingham McCutcheon, and um, she's a she has her JD from Stanford, um, so she's definitely acclimated to our fine weather out here. Um, Corrine, you're with us.
4: I am, yes. Hi.
3: Thank you for joining us. And um, Corrine just recently published um, a piece on um, the, what is called the graduated response deal. And why don't you tell us what exactly is this graduated response or six-strike deal that everyone's talking about?
4: Well, it, it, there's a lot of details which we can get into, but the big picture is that the most of the major ISPs, uh, most of the major um, Internet access providers, including probably the providers for most of the people who are listening, um, and the <laughs> major uh, content owners, <laughs> big media, um, made a deal um, for how allegations of infringement are going to be handled. Um, Essentially what the ISPs have agreed to do, and some of this they already did, but it was not sort of uniform and not everybody did it, and some of the things they never used to do. But at any rate, what they've agreed to do is follow a sort of series of steps when content owners send them information alleging that a given subscriber is engaging in some kind of infringement. Now to be clear what the content owners are going to send them is not, you know, the name and address of the subscriber, but rather the subscriber's IP address because that's all they know. And and basically the the service providers can use that information to match it up with a actual subscriber and then they can contact that subscriber in a variety and and respond in a variety of ways that begin with Basically, a sort of intimidating educational uh, alert, <laughs> and um, ends with uh, they they have a variety of options, but includes slowing down the person's service, cutting out their web access until they go to a landing page that provides them with you know various kinds of information, and um, in other ways, sort of interfering with with the subscriber's service.
3: Now, um, YouTube has started something like that. They have, they have that little. Um, copyright video is kind of like you know their version of traffic school.
4: Yeah, they do what they have What YouTube did uh, a little while ago is put in, in place a system where, um, if you, if you receive a takedown notice uh, under the DMCA, basically something targeting your video that says that you've engaged in some kind of infringement, um, you have to go to copyright school, and then once you go to copyright school, you can you know potentially get your content back up if you counter notice but the point is you still have to go to copyright school and and that really means that you have to watch a video um, that tells you that gives you information about copyright and um, is in my view you know, very misleading um, in the information that it provides and then you have to take a little quiz and uh, so yeah that is their little version just like of traffic school, school. Yeah. <laughs> yeah this is a little bit different it, um, in the sense that it, it has Well, there's a whole variety of steps. And the other thing is we don't know yet what the um, educational component is going to be. If you look at what is on... The the deal sets up a copyright information center. And if you look at what's on that information center now, again, I I fear that if this is a a portent of things to come, consumers are going to get some pretty biased information about copyright law as part of this educational process. You know, the, the... it's a po- part of the idea, which I think is not, you know, wrong, is that it may be that subscribers um, are, there may be some infringing activity that's happening on their account and they may not know about it. And it seems to me that that's perfectly fine to let people know so that they can take steps if they need to. Um, you know, if you're a mom and you've got a teenage boy, you might want to know, <laughs> what you know, what he's up to. But there's a lot of other components to the deal that are much more serious and much more severe. And one of the concerns that we have at EFF is that, um, you know, subscribers are going to be paying for this, and they didn't have a chance to participate in figuring out, in in participating in making the deal, and they won't have a chance to participate in implementing it.
3: Now, this happens in the context where in Europe, for example, France has actually taught, taken a more draconian approach, although apparently unsuccessfully, um, with a, I believe it's a three strikes and you're out, and you're actually disconnected from the internet, and yeah. to, to a great deal of criticism.
4: Quite right, and um, Ireland has has its own version of the deal. I mean, there've been there's been a big push internationally to put these various kinds of measures in, in place, and I think, but also an enormous outcry from. Subscribers um, who are very concerned because if you think about what we're talking about here, I mean, this is your your internet access. I mean, you're, that's right. like cutting off your phone. <laughs> People need their phone. <laughs> People need their internet. We use it for all kinds of things. This is in no way a luxury, but it's a sort of a basic utility.
3: And wasn't there a European body that more or less said that um, access to the internet is, is somewhat, to a certain degree, a human right?
4: Um, I believe that's right. I believe that's right,
3: and um, so when we talk about you know the ISP is making a deal and this being pushed, um the people pushing this would be um, i guess the the primarily the motion picture and um, television and recording um, studios
4: exactly um they're you know they're trying they think that this will help them fight. Um, online infringement. And to be clear, this deal is really focused very specifically on peer-to-peer. I mean, their definition, you know, they they sort of make some reference to other kinds of online infringement, but Mm -hmm. they're really talking about peer-to-peer file sharing and allegations of infringement using peer-to-peer software. And that actually is something that I worry about a little bit with this so-called educational component, because I fear that one of the things that consumers are going to be told and subscribers are going to be told is that, or at least they'll get the impression that peer-to-peer, the technology itself, is, is even and leads to all kinds of bad things. But in fact, the technology itself is not the problem, right? I mean, you could use it. Technology is neutral. The technology is neutral. and In fact, peer-to-peer technology is used for all kinds of great things. I mean, NASA uses BitTorrent. (laughs) So, uh, speaking of space missions.
3: Exactly. (laughs) And um, so, in in terms of um, where where we stand in the process, has this been... um, Is this a done deal, or is this actually, is there still any debate to be had, or?
4: Well, it's been. I mean, the deal has been made, and you know, with under partially under government auspices, there's sort of you know various government representatives that's kind of blessed it, Um, and. But it isn't in place yet. Um, This is sort of what's been released is the Memorandum of Understanding. Here's what we've all agreed to after negotiating for several years, which they have been doing. Um, But there's still some steps to be taken to put it in place. They need to – they're creating this um, sort of group to oversee the whole thing, the the Center for Copyright Information. Um, And they – they need to appoint an executive committee and an advisory board, you know, formulate the educational materials and so on. So there's several steps to go. And which means that there's still time, I think for subscribers to raise their voice, if they're concerned about the contents of the deal, Um, you know, it's unfortunate they didn't have the opportunity to raise their voice earlier by being included in these conversations in some way. Um, But nonetheless, there's still time now.
3: And, um, and in, in terms of some of the other participants i mean I think you referenced that a uh, um governor i almost almost said attorney general cuomo um governor cuomo was was one of the people involved was that when he was governor or was it attorney general
4: he's attorney general
3: and um and so um who else was involved besides the the ISPs and the uh um were any other any interest groups invited to the table
4: um not that, at least not that, not that we're hearing about publicly. Um, well, it, you know, it's, Attorney General Andrew Cuomo, you know, was is taking cr- credit actually for brokering this. So I think he was most definitely involved. And you know, I suspect that um, various other kind of government officials were keeping an eye on and were were in the loop and in and part of the conversation. I mean, this thing's been going on for a long time. It's been negotiated since I think two thousand eight, um, and it just took a long time to get everybody on board. Uh, not surprisingly, because it's a pretty, you know, pretty major thing to work out. Um, which also means that there was plenty of opportunity to invite subscriber representatives, but I do not believe that that happened. I think that the idea was perhaps that the ISPs would represent their subscribers, but that is really kind of contradictory. Um, and it, <laughs> and it doesn't appear that the, that the government officials that were involved to the extent that they were were taking seriously their obligation to also represent those subscribers. Interests. But there's an executive committee being set up, and one of the things that they could do with this deal is they could um, make sure that that executive committee right now, the, the, what's contemplated is that there will be representatives from the ISP side and the big content side. Um, but really, what we need is a representative, to, we need, you know, voting members of that committee should be consumer interest groups. There is a provision for an advisory board that could consider that could include members from consumer interest communities. But that's just an advisory board, right? What we need is someone who actually has a vote. And, you know, that's really – because, again, the reality is the costs of this are going to be passed on to the subscribers, right? This is the way is it always works.
3: Is there, <laughs> there a part the model for this? subscribers are going this? to
4: be paying for it, they should have a voice.
3: Is there any prior model for anything similar? I mean, I'm, I'm thinking, of, you know, kind of quasi-governmental, but not, you know, ICANN ish um, You know, what is there to draw upon from you know, from past experience?
4: Well, I mean, I, yeah, I, I guess you could look to, to ICAN, um, as, although that's a little scary. But <laughs> <laughs> ICAN, I, I think, is has a reputation of being um, kind of sometimes n- not a very efficient organization. But, um, so I'm not sure that's the model we want to look to. But, but um, you know, I don't know that there's really a, um, a, a comparable model for this. You know, I think they're going to be forging new territory here, and um, which means it's going to be really important to, to see how it gets set up. And also You're another right. thing that's yeah. going to be important well, is that there be transparency which unfortunately right now there there isn't much provision for that so that subscribers can know, for example, there, there's all sorts of reports that are supposed to be generated, for example, but it's not clear that, that those are going to be, and it looks like they're not going to be available to the public so that people can sort of evaluate whether this whole system is working, whether it's effective, whether it's not effective, um, how much it's costing, and so on.
3: Now, Now in a different context, I might say, well, I mean, you always have Congress to, to look over their shoulder, but in in this context, um, you know, Congress has pretty much been aligned with the content providers um, heavily in the last couple of Congress. It seems, you know, with the, uh, um, the what was known as the uh, the Internet censorship bill from last year, that seems to have morphed into something this year. Right. I mean,
4: this is an entirely private. Discussion, right, and an entirely private um, uh, process that is being set up, and that I think that's a little bit disturbing. There's been a real push in in, um, in from Washington to encourage what are called you know, voluntary measures, and the idea is that you know we don't want to legislate; we want people to do this on their own, come up with their own solutions, and not we don't want to dictate from from Washington, And that sounds very nice, but what it also means is that um, there's, there isn't really an avenue for regular citizens to have a voice in, in the negotiations in the way that at least theoretically there is when, when it happens in Congress.
3: Um, we're going to take a short break, but when we come back, we'll be talking more about the graduated response and six strikes after these messages.
2: Stay tuned for more of the Cyber Law and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors.
1: Oh yeah, my day is done. Time for happy hour. You're already done for the day? Yeah, because I use certifiedknowledge.org.
2: Do you look at the task of ranking your site at the top of the search engines like you would climbing the top of Mount Everest? It doesn't have to be. TopSEOs.com knows how hard that climb can be, and they can make top ranking a reality. Top SEOs send you to only the right search vendors and agencies that they know will work for you. Since 2002, TopSEOs.com has reviewed and researched the best search engine marketing agencies and solutions providers. Don't risk the cost of falling off the proverbial peak of search rankings. Let TopSEOs give you peace of mind. TopSEOs.com, the independent authority on search vendors.
1: MySEOtool.com is your all-in-one SEO management resource. MySEOtool.com makes it easy to optimize and oversee all of your SEO efforts. Line-by-line detailed reports help you
0: identify any problems and show you how to fix them. MySEOtool.com is completely automated. Once you use it, you will see a rise in your search rankings and traffic.
4: Try MySEOtool risk-free today. Go to MySEOtool.com. MySEOtool.com.
2: Rock the world with LinkedIn, Mondays at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific, or on demand anytime inside the Internet Marketing Channel, only on WebmasterRadio.fm. The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report, only
3: on WebmasterRadio.fm. And we're back. This is Bennett Kelly here again, and we're talking about the graduated response or the six strikes for copyright infringement on the Internet. And, um, Kareem, um, what is the IS – excuse me, not the ISPs, but the content providers' expectation as to what type of impact this might have?
4: Well, I think that they think that this will lead to um, folks not – uh, you know, I, I think their hope is that it will lead to um, a reduction in peer-to-peer file sharing um, of um, content where, where that file sharing isn't authorized by the law or by them. That's, I, I think that's the hope.
3: Hey, but is it, you know, they, they expect it to be, you know, an overwhelming or is this, is this something that's a benefit at the margins or they really think this will, this will stop um, that type of activity?
4: I think, well, I don't think that they expect it's going to, I mean, no one can realistically expect that it's going to stop um, right. folks um, sharing music and, you know, legally or illegally. You know, <laughs> I think that's unlikely in the extreme. But I think that they think that it will slow it down um, and, you know, sort of at least cut it down, cut down the, the amount of um, unauthorized activity that's, that's happening out there.
3: Now, how successful have the measures they've been taking to date been?
4: Um, you mean in other countries?
3: No, um, yes.
4: Oh, or, or do you mean the United States? I mean, they've done they've done a couple things so far. I mean, the 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 the, the music industry in particular their approach was was two steps. First, they sued the companies um, and, tra- and sued several companies out of existence, and then they sued um, individual users. And that turned out to be pretty much a disaster. It was you know, very I saw some data and,
3: about the amount that they were spending per user <laughs>
4: yeah, in it legal fees and, and it was and, astronomical. And it was a sort of public relations disaster uh, as you can imagine. Sort of suing music demands right. as your business model is not a very good idea. Um, so they stopped that in 2008 and then started these negotiations with, with the ISPs. So if you look at what they've done, so, so those are the things they've done so far and um, I would have to say that I do not think they've been incredibly successful. <laughs> Um because uh, it's still true that uh, music fans have you know are still sharing music, and they're just using different kinds of programs for doing it and, and realize too that you know you you don't have to use peer-to-peer to share music, right There's all kinds of other ways that you can do it, and that people are doing it now. And really the um the, what you need to do is you, you need to compete with free. you need to give people a better and more interesting um option. And then they will you know, they, they will be interested in pursuing legal alternatives, but you have to make those good. And the um, record companies in particular have been very, very slow or were very, very, very slow to get there, to, to sort of agree to the options that actually might be appealing to people. Um, there are better alternatives now than there were 10 years ago, that's for sure. There's better alternatives now than there were five years ago. But if there had been better alternatives five years ago, 10 years ago, if they hadn't been so slow, um, I do think that they would have, you know, managed to to address this problem um, more quickly and and more easily than than what we're going to see with this whole elaborate system
3: now it's interesting when you said uh, suing your clients is is not necessarily a very good business model um i'm i'm reminded of the fact <laughs> of a, another area in copyright where the uh, your the electronic frontier foundation is also very active and that's with right haven and um mm-hmm. and not only did that not work but it also proved to be a public relations disaster all around for them as well
4: it sure it sure has turned into that well there's you know well, we can. Talk, I'm happy to talk about Right Haven. There's, there's all kinds of shenanigans that goes on over there. Um, but yeah, I think that there was this idea that Right Haven. I mean, in addition to the the legal problems, which we can talk about with Right Haven, but there was also the public relations problem. I think that, that Right Haven had a notion that they would persuade newspapers that these lawsuits were were the way to go in terms of encouraging people not to um, repost news. But I don't think that that's what's happened at all. Instead, what we've got is a public relations disaster because they've been so um, indiscriminate about who they've sued. They've gone and, you know, they've sued political forums. They've sued political campaigns. they sued all kinds, of you know, small little guys who really seem very unobjectionable. And when people find out about that and realize that, um, that that's who's being sued here, it's, um, it leaves everyone with kind of a bad taste in their mouth.
3: Now, if, correct me if I'm wrong, but... Um in terms of the um, kind of the, the the lance or the the first cut that that ended up become, leading a, to a, a bloody flow for Right Haven was, was inflicted by EFF on behalf of Democratic Underground, was it not?
4: um uh, and and we also we have fantastic co counsel with and uh, and we have we were working on two different right-handed cases and we work with Fenno Campbell West on that and also Wilson Sonsini on on the two different cases and what what emerged when we moved into discovery was that um that they Right Haven basically had, did not have its ducks in a row by a long shot. They did not get the appropriate copyright assignments. They didn't set themselves up appropriately so that they could, so that they would have the right to go around suing folks. And so that means that they didn't have standing. Basically, it means you know they didn't have the right to go to court. And they actually just got sanctioned last week for. Um, for that, because the court, um, one of the judges that we were before, is very concerned about this, and you know, it, it, it looks to us like what's been happening here is something that is deceitful, and so he um, he sanctioned, Right Haven for for engaging in that activity, and so that um, it's really been a problem. And so what now? What Right Haven's been doing is it keeps trying to revise the agreement to see if they can fix it, if they can fix this problem. Right, um, and, and really one judge just, just the first
3: laughed season. and said. You can't change jurisdiction retroactively. Either you had it when you came into this court, or you didn't. Right. And uh, was that the one in your case?
4: Um. Right. And and just think about it. The well, I think that was an order that just came out in a in a different case. You know, they have so many cases going that they must be getting they get hit with orders right and left. (laughs) They've got a lot to defend. But that's actually one of the things that's made the courts particularly concerned is that it's you know our understanding that this, this um, sham assignment applies not just to our cases, but they've filed over 200 cases. Right. And it is likely that it applies to most, if not all, of these other cases as well. So it's not just about our clients. It's about they've been going around suing all kinds of people, again, on a sham basis. So the effect of this is very broad.
3: And what surprised me, actually, is, you know, you know, I'm glad you guys defended Democratic Underground, but, um, you know, some groups like um, Drudge, it seemed like he would have had the means to fight them. I was surprised he didn't.
4: Well, you know, that's one of the things about these suits. Um, it was a nuisance. These kinds of lawsuits is that um, a lot of people are going to make the determination that it's just not worth it to pay a lawyer. To defend yourself, the amount of money that you would have to spend. How could they
3: ever come to that conclusion?
4: (laughs) (laughs) I know, really. Uh, Imagine. But, you know, it's not everybody can get pro bono lawyers. That's what our clients have. But most people don't have access to that. And, you know, there aren't that many pro bono intellectual property lawyers out there, I'm afraid. Um, There's, you know, some, but not enough to cover all of these people who are being sued. And so they're going to make a determination that it's just... Better to, you know, pay a few thousand dollars to Right Haven and have it all go away than to get involved in a, in a legal fight. And that's really too bad, but I mean, it's rational, but it's unfortunate because, but I think it's also one of the things that Right Haven was banking on, that they wouldn't have to actually get, you know, do real litigation and, you know, which means that they wouldn't have to reveal this sham assignment that they had. Um, but turns out they guessed wrong.
3: Well, was was the, the the DU case that you guys took was was that the first major contested case they had, or had anyone fought them much before?
4: I think that there were one or two other ones that were that were getting pushed um, as well. I'm trying to think a little bit about the timing, but I do think that you know we really gave them a run for their money, and and we were the ones that managed to get that document out in discovery.
3: And then everything, the whole house of cards fell apart. And the whole house um, of cards fell apart. We're, we're running a little bit short on time. Um, I, I, one thing I neglected to say is um, you could just tell us a little bit about what the EFS is and um, what are some of the projects it has right now.
4: Well, we are a digital rights organization, and essentially we're sort of the 911 of the Internet, and people turn to us when they have legal problems that relate to to um new technologies. And so we are doing a whole lot of different things trying to make sure that the law turns out right and that, as we often say, the Constitution makes it intact onto the Internet.
3: And um, you guys have done a great job, Beth, with Bright Haven. Um, Corinne. I want to thank you for um, coming on board. And um, what's your next um, big project?
4: Oh gosh, I have so many going on at the moment. It's 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 hard to to narrow down on one. Um, we are still focusing on the Right Haven issues and uh, filing a variety of amicus briefs around the country in the next little while, um, addressing a whole host of of internet issues and um, particularly questions about intermediary liability and and basically whether um, one of the things I worry about a lot is is what I call the weakest link, which is when intellectual property complaints lead to the takedown of legal content.
3: And what do you do in that case?
4: Well, we do a number of different things. When, it's a, when it involves copyright, we get involved directly and we, you know, we or we, we try to. Sometimes we counsel individuals about what their options are. We do a lot of counseling in that way. And sometimes we get involved directly. When it's trademark, it's more difficult. Sometimes we have to go ahead and get involved in litigation because Um, there is no sort of counter-notice procedure for trademark. And so what happens sometimes is that the the intermediaries will say, look, you work it out amongst yourselves. We really can't can't help you. And, you know, that's when you really need a lawyer to to step in and either, you know, respond with, with, hopefully you can get it resolved informally via letter writing, but sometimes you have to go to court and actually do some litigation and, and get a declaratory judgment that says what you're doing is legal.
3: And, um, well, thank you very much for um, for joining us today. Now, Corrine McSherry, she has an article on the Graduate Response on the Electronic Frontier Foundation website, which is at EFF.org. And um, it's co-authored with um, Eric Goldman, the um, professor from Santa Clara, who's also been on the show before. And so if you're interested in that, check it out. We'll, we'll post a link on it um, as well. And again, check out the Electronic Frontier Foundation. They've been very active in this space um, on the issue of copyright as well as a number of other digital issues. And so I encourage you to check out their website, EFF.org. Corrine, thanks again for joining us, and I hope you'll consider joining us again.
4: Well, thanks very much. It's been fun.
3: All right. When we come back after this break, we will have James O'Brien to talk about the election landscape for the online world after these messages. Stay tuned for more of the Cyber Law and
2: Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors. Looking for an affiliate network that can package every solution an advertiser
0: or publisher needs in one account? Your one-stop source for full-service solutions is AdMedia.com. AdMedia tailors your all-in-one campaign to give your account a real advantage. AdMedia.com delivers cost-effective ad solutions with real conversions. Learn everything AdMedia can do for you
1: today. Sign up at AdMedia.com. AdMedia, strong ROI made simple. Looking for a white-label SEO and social platform for your clients? Think eBrands. Free and unlimited SEO audit reports. eBrands. Try eBrands for 30 days. Go to eBrandsWithAZ.com or call 1-866-625-5717. That's eBrandsWithAZ for eBrands. On the road. On the boat. Working out. Or up in the air. Now you can listen to WebmasterRadio.fm on the go. From anywhere, look for WebmasterRadio.fm on TuneIn. Available for download on your iPhone, iPad, BlackBerry, Android, Palm, Samsung, and Windows Phone. As well as Google TV, Yahoo TV, and Roku. Tune in to WebmasterRadio.fm on the go from anywhere by downloading TuneIn right now. WebmasterRadio.fm. We really are everywhere.
2: The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report, only on
3: webmasterradio.fm. And we're back for our second segment, and we have with us um, an old friend. um, Many of you may know Um, James O'Brien used to be the marketing director at Lashback, the um, email um, compliance firm and um, leading in the can-spam compliance space. Um, He's since left Lashback and has joined the um, distinguished magazine of campaigns and elections and as their associate publisher. And um, one sure way to know if someone's thinking about running for office is they may have that in their hand. And so James offers a huge huge advantage for us because he can speak to both the political realities of what's going on in this upcoming election as well as have a a detailed knowledge of the online space. James, are you with us?
5: Uh, Yes, I sure am, Uh, and thanks for having me on.
3: It's great to hear from you again. Now, James, um, it's definitely going to be an interesting year, but I'm I'm hearing some uh, huge numbers. Um, that you know, a candidate can expect to spend a billion dollars just to get through the nomination process.
5: I think some of those numbers are a little bit off. I mean, Carl uh, Rove did an interesting article yesterday for Fox News, you know, sort of arguing that you know Obama won't get to a um, billion dollars, you know, with his fundraising. That's been sort of over to that billion dollar mark. Um, it's certainly when you think of political online or, or just advertising spending at all in the context of, of all advertising dollars, it's still a relatively small percentage I mean more money sort of market bubblegum and hairspray you know, then we are our leaders you know who are making some you know some of the most important decisions in the world for us out there um, and their marketing is just sort of, sort of come around and get a little bit more sophisticated and get those budgets there you know so candidates can um, can actually get their message out and through the clutter to the, to the voting public.
3: Now, Moody's is projecting um, a budget, I think, of in the neighborhood of two point seven billion dollars we spent in political ads in this cycle. Is that, is that more or less what you've been hearing?
5: Yeah, you know, I, I think overall, I mean, we're, we'll definitely um, eclipse the, the two billion mark this cycle, um, and you know, I, I think it's still far smaller percentage of it will be in online dollars. Um I know in past cycles, you know search still sort of dominated um, more than half about sixty percent of the spending um, in the last major uh, presidential cycle
4: and
3: what's it's interesting is that you so know I looked much. at the um, latest data and I think online advertising counts for eighteen percent of overall advertising in the you know the you know the hairspray bubblegum world that use your analogy and um, sure. but I Yeah, I think the projections for 2012 are are 2% of the political market. And what accounts for this great disparity?
5: And that's exactly what we're seeing in talking to firms that are doing the actual buying and and just looking at the data some of the larger races, you know, can extrapolate a percentage, you know, that's a little more meaningful. I think in in New Jersey we saw last cycle the the gubernatorial campaign, you know, both spent, I think, under um, a half a million dollars, pretty sizable budgets online. Um, Meg Women in California recently um, did about I think she did over three million um which was still I think it was about at that about that three percent um, of her overall uh, of her overall ad budget. So
3: well, why I mean, why the disparity? Uh, what what is it about political advertising that um, doesn't lend itself as well to um, so the online spaces, say, you know, um, you know soap?
5: <laughs> yeah, so a, a big part of it, I think, is, you know, traditional media consultants, I think, still dominate uh, spending de- de- decisions. And if you want to reach, guaranteed to reach, uh, enough voters to win an election, people are still looking at uh, radio and television, um, whether broadcast or cable, you know, by far. So one of the things that we're seeing happening, though, is the sophistication level of the agencies, and also the ability um, of some of the um, actual websites like Google AdSense to sort of offer self-service, um, uh, if you will, mm-hmm. uh, is what's really going to start to drive those numbers up a little bit. So we're seeing more agencies, uh, you know, far more sophisticated technology people working at them. They're not just the political hacks. But also, you know, do email and maybe put up a website. Um, yeah, you know, you've been following um, how uh, Obama has been putting together, you know, one of the most sophisticated, um, it, one of the most sophisticated uh, online data departments that's probably ever yeah. been put together for any political campaign anywhere um, near their Chicago headquarters. To me, well, it's to be interesting to see what we are actually going to do with that
3: yeah there's actually this uh, I want to get into that in a minute, but just um just for the listeners you know james you, you have a background I didn't really explain, but you have a you, you have a background as a political consultant prior to going into the online space
5: yeah you know, I've done uh, close to two hundred in, in twenty six different states um and it was really before getting into into the online space, so you know is doing a lot of traditional media um and a lot of sort of operational you know tactical stuff. So now, it's is, been fascinating sorry, to go, go into technology and then back to DC, to see where the goal online land is. Um, so there's always been, you know, behind certainly, you know, what what the corporate advertising world is doing.
3: Yeah, and, and on that point, I mean, the, one of the issues, unlike corporate advertising, where you, you learn from what you did last month. Um, in the political world you learn what you did last cycle, which could be two years ago, four years ago and you know and here's a case where I, I've noticed that you know they, they tend to fight the last war and so um, I'm sure right now everyone's focusing on social media to the extent they didn't do so last time when maybe that they should be focusing on mobile and um, and did you did you observe that at all?
5: Yeah, you know, I, I think uh, it was interesting watching uh, Facebook hire Katie Harbath, who had uh, been sort of an online guru here in DC, and had done um, some really great work for Giuliani and to go out there and actually educate the, the consultants they about uh, what you know can really do, it. and you know, and how often, I mean, the regulations around putting up a thirty-second spot on a network—it's not hard to navigate your way through, and it really hasn't changed that much you know, in the last like, 10 or 20 years, whereas, you know, Facebook and the rules around, you know, what type of page you have and how you use it, um, you know, has, you know, changes on you know, almost a weekly basis. Right. So, again, it's another thing for a lot of the traditional consultants that are used to doing things one way, but they know how to direct mail, they know how to network television, um, you know, are having more trouble definitely Understanding how not just get online advertising executed,
3: but then how to do it effectively. You know, I remember actually doing a when I was with ValueClick doing a run to um, Washington in 2004, just trying to see what type of dollars we could get on this, and and it it, it, you know people really were still in the the 1990s in terms of what their outlook of the internet was, and you know just trying to educate them as to what was possible. Um, you, it really seemed like it was going to take a number of years, and, and clearly it has. And, um, but one thing I've always been interested in, and this kind of touches on your earlier comment, James, in that the, the inability, I think, of the um, online space to capture a larger share of um, the ad market, I've always wondered is, as that changes and as that grows and, and as the um, members see greater results – um, from online ads, particularly as you move into areas such as behavioral um, or, or social, and to what extent that might affect um, policy views. And are you, yeah, you going know, I, to be more likely it, to it, regulate you know, um, behavioral behavior, advertising when you realize that it may have become helped you win that last primary? And that's and exactly so. Right.
5: I see it as one of the greatest threats, actually, right now, to some of those uh, elected officials making policies on the Hill. And looking at the disconnect, I think there's some really incredible firms out there, like whether it's Revolution Messaging on the Democratic side, group um, or Connell Donatelli, Craft um, uh, uh, Media, you know, on the Republican side. Um, you know, they really understand the compliance issues, um, and have people that they're investing in their education to, to understand how to be compliant, how to do those things correctly. You know, there's still, you know, in that sort of middle ground, you know, we're gonna have less consistency around that and a general lack of knowledge, I think, of of a lot of the, the laws that govern, you know, simple, you know, if one campaign wants to share their email list with another, I don't think they're really cognizant of of what their you know, of what their privacy policy websites that if they were allowed to share that data. To Although, be, you know, a if you practice, have
3: noticed, a lot of the uh, political stuff is usually exempt from <laughs> that type of uh, regulation. But um, it is. I mean, it's interesting because th- at this very moment, you know, these issues are being debated in Congress. I think there's there's a markup today. I think on a, um, a data breach bill, and uh, and so privacy is very much front and center on Capitol Hill this year. And right at the moment when, you know, all these candidates are also telling their consultants to drum up money and drum up support online.
5: So uh, I'll make a prediction, you know, with all the, uh, you know, with, with Sony Entertainment's data breach and all the press that it has gotten, we will not get through this next cycle without a major scandal around data privacy use with an elected official. And whether or not it might actually, you know, be someone sort of involved in the process, I would hope that they're, you know, taking care of things a little bit better. But, you know, I think your average campaign that's out there be a challenge for them to be compliant. And and there are some, you know, exceptions with, you know, can-spam, you know, the gay political speech. But at the same time, if a campaign is going to sell paraphernalia, they're bound to be compliant with the can-spam act.
3: Commercial no, it, you know, it, I, frankly, the developments in the past year in terms of hacking, you know, with with Anonymous and some of the other groups, you know, have been f- are f- quite alarming. And you know, so I wouldn't be surprised to see a member of Congress get targeted, or a campaign, or a DNC, RNC, you know, have some and have some you know something catastrophic happen. You know, from you know, uh, either you know, from political point of view, and um, oh yeah, you I, know, I, I agree I, with that. In fact, you know, it's been the Sony CEO has been lamenting,
5: you know, that. Yeah, you know, they've taken so much criticism when they were targeted so severely, and I don't know many organizations, including some of our defense agencies and important governmental agencies, that have also been you know hacked. And if the you're CIA, really targeted, NATO, you
3: know, how do uh, you avoid that? Yeah, um, um, but I'm the, also thinking
5: uh, of just sort of, of unforced errors, you know, of a campaign exactly, you know, not securing yeah. a website properly or using the wrong data, um, and sort of getting caught, you know, just making a sort of a blatant compliance mistake.
3: Um, it's kind of like if you're a Cubs fan, it's like that fan reaching in and and, and taking that ball, <laughs> you know. do do that. I'm sorry. It's just that you know, it's one of those things that you know, you can do your best you can, and you can still have stuff like that happen. And you know, and I'm I mean, in some ways the one thing I look at this whole Murdoch scandal is that um, you know people may have been taking hacking very lightly. And when you put that in context and, you know, away from the whole political aspect of Murdoch, but in context, what well, what's going on, you know, with the, you know, they just, are, they just busted 16 people um, earlier this week um, as part of the anonymous ring and that, that this is really kind of a serious and growing threat to you know, our, our daily lives and, and to business that, you know, this is something that shouldn't be taken lightly and that, um, you know, some people need to be made an example And um, just so that people uh, don't think it's a funny thing
5: to do. uh, uh, You're putting on uh, Campaign Tech, uh, which will be a new um, seminar that we're doing in November uh, here in Washington, D.C. It's at uh, campaigntechconference.com. And um, a big piece of that is going to be bringing in um, counsel, because when we talk about compliance in politics, it's usually around fundraising and money out of federal campaigns and that stuff. So. We're going to be talking about compliance for data security, yeah, the proper use of email and mobile, which I think is really um, sort of skipping a, that baby skipped a generation in the corporate world. It, we front and center, um, you know, for many of the political races, and I think it's going to be the, the channel to watch, where a lot of the sort of new creative applications of mobile technology, uh, from, like my mobile, um, are, going to, uh, are going to are going to be at the forefront this cycle.
3: Well, I was reading that every candidate should have their own mobile app. You know, they should have a one. You, know, you should be in touch with your cons, your constituent or you know your, your supporters, and they should have your app on their phone. I mean, I don't know to what extent that's being done, but I saw some consultants say that should be done. Yeah,
5: conservative victories um, in the recent federal Canadian elections. Um, most of those campaigns actually had their own mobile app. Um and just in terms of transparency, um T Mobile is a major advertiser for campaigns and um, elections. but we like them because they're really democratizing the technology and their advancement is really in pushing down the price point, you know, from something that has cost, you know, tens of thousands of dollars to field and maintain to something that's now basically gonna cost hundreds. Um, and with that, you know, you're gonna see a lot more campaigns using that technology, um, using it well, but then there's also gonna be, you know, the errors, uh, and those errors, as we know, can sometimes mean you know a serious violation of, of, of serious federal laws. So um, part of what we want to do with campaign tech in November is really educate um, around those issues, but also just in general to make sure that you know the consultants and the agencies that are here in Washington D.C. and across the, across the world really, you know, are as on top of compliance issues and the technology, you know, as the agencies are in, uh, in the corporate world.
3: Now, uh, Campaigns and Elections, you just recently, you were bought by a a U.K. company?
5: Yeah, Biteback Media, which publishes Total Politics uh, in the U.K., um, which is more of a political lifestyle magazine, um, not unlike maybe some people would remember George here in the United States. I was going to say, yeah. Um, A bit more sophisticated, though, I I think, in terms of their brand and their content. Um, And, of course, Campaigns and Elections is really sort of the – the B2B publication, um, yeah. you know, it's about the industry for the industry. Um, you know, we're not really focused on policy or, or people that much, you know, unless to, to the extent that consultants and those individual sort of characters in or industry, you know, are doing, you know, interesting things with technology or media or what have you.
3: Although I've seen some pretty brilliant things on your blog, uh, on in terms of the political side, but, um, any event, the, uh, um, in terms of um, you know what you what you're looking at in, in 2012 as the kind of the next big thing, what do you think that will be?
5: Yeah, like I, I think it's definitely mobile. Uh, I think you're going to see it take on um, um, sort of a life of its own um, as people realize that you know everyone is sitting there. But we've talked to some of the larger you know media networks, and they're worried because you know I know I'm sitting there at night you know, with the news on, but I have my iPad in one hand and my BlackBerry in the other, and I'm messaging people and getting information, so there's two screens between myself and the television set. So, yeah, uh-huh. so it's the traditional media to figure out how to get Plus in the, the middle of that wheel. connection, too, and how to be part of that, that dialogue.
3: But, yeah, um, I think the that's... News is,
5: is is Those companies are definitely thinking about that problem, so I, I hope we'll see some sort of innovative solutions around that
3: so if you if you're an if you're a candidate does that mean you 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 recognize that obviously the tv is the is the shotgun and i'm going to get the, the biggest um, bang but um but through mobile i can i can kind of measure engagement i guess
5: yeah you know it's it's and it's interesting you know how many you know the campaigns do they really have the time and this has been part of the issue um to delve into their analytics i mean Certainly the bigger races, the presidential, um, you know, the larger, you know, statewide and like California. I mean, so they have a department probably looking at analytics. But there are really some of the few political races that are doing that. I mean, most of them are, you know, it's a one-day sale with a very short, you know, time limit. And most of the spending is done towards the end of the cycle. So analytics plays a, um, a role, but not in the same way that it does, um, you know, in the campaign world that, that we're used to. More traditional online, so
3: mm-hmm.
5: I think it's also been you know part of the issue for um, for online spending being able to take more budget away from other media um, channels like it has in, in the corporate world.
3: Well, James, um, I'm, I'm being given the hook here, and um, but I want to thank you for joining us on short notice, and uh, you know I hope you'll consider joining us again, and definitely um, keep us up to date on the um, campaign tech in November. Um, we'd like to hear how that goes. Um, everyone, that was James O'Brien with Campaigns and Elections. James, what's your website?
5: Uh, it's uh, campaignsandelections.com. Uh, Elections
3: dot So please join us um, next. Um, we will be taking a, a week off next week, but we'll be back the following week on Wednesday at ten a.m. Um, Pacific here on Cyber Law and Business Report. This is Bennett Kelly from our uh, Internet Law Center Media Center in Santa Monica saying court is adjourned and we will see you next time. Thanks again. Thanks, James.